So, gents, back with another round of podcast episodes. And this week, we've got Gary Das. And Gary is actually the founder and managing director of Active Finance. He's also the host of Financial Pro, which is a really awesome podcast. Definitely check it out. It's more geared towards mortgage advisors, but you'll definitely get some good information from there as a business owner or as a landlord too. Or do we let the current flat out, being in negative equity, and, and get a consent to let? and buy a new home, which is the route that we went. Um, so we, we basically let the current flat out. The, the payment was relatively high back then and obviously rates have plummeted since. So we, you know, it was, it was wiping its nose a little bit, shall we say, and making a little bit of money. But realistically, we just moved into our house, which then went on to make, you know, fortunes as the market recovered. I think on this particular podcast, it's going to be exciting to talk to, to Gary about a lot of different trends and how the financial markets have gone over the last couple of years, especially since the pandemic. And dare we say it, we might ask for the mystic Meg prediction of what comes next as well. Mike, what are you most looking forward to with Gary on this podcast? Well, I think Gary's a little bit different to your standard mortgage broker or owner of brokerage in that he's obsessed by marketing, obsessed by the, the, the mechanics behind that. So it'd be really interesting to, to see what his opinion is on where the whole industry is going um, and, and how that's going to progress as, as a whole, to be honest. Yeah, looking forward to that. And Tristan, yourself, I know you've known Gary from from prior. So from your point of view, what are you excited to ask him? Yeah, exactly. As you said, I've known Gary for a few years now. I've listened to all of his podcasts at nearly 200. Gives so much information, just like we do, free of charge to landlords, giving free advice and to brokers, because that's typically what he, he targets. But I think it'd be nice to hear a different perspective of what's going on in the mortgage world. As you said, going through trends and find out why he become a landlord himself. Absolutely. So yeah, we're going to talk about insurance. We're going to talk about trends with HMOs. We might get stuck into some different areas of where people are investing as well with his clients and maybe talk about some data. So let's get Gary on for this week's episode. Gents, excited to say we're here with Gary Das and Gary is going to talk to us about all things insurance, mortgages and have a real conversation about the financial market. Gary, founder of M- uh, founder and MD, I should say, of Active Finance. But the first question we always want to get into is why did you become a landlord? Uh, I'm your typical, and thanks for having me on, by the way. Let's just chuck that one in there, of course. Um, we got there in the diaries in the end. Yeah. Um, but yeah, mine, mine was actually an accidental. So in 2005, I built someone else's mortgage brokerage to £100,000 a month within 11 months. Um, and that was when Money Supermarket started. And I saw that you could buy leads, names, and numbers from Money Supermarkets. I was like, Dad, can I have two and a half grand? I want to go self-employed. Um, and at that time, you could get 100% mortgage from Northern Rock. So in 2006, um, or sorry, 2005, November, uh, I moved into my first flat for £200,000 here in Essex. And then we had the credit crunch. And about three years later, it was worth absolutely peanuts. Yeah. <clears throat> probably lost about 60 grand on it. So it was probably negative equity by about 60,000. Um, fortunately, I'd obviously saved some money and I had a choice of, do I um, use the money that my, my then wife or now wife um, had saved and put a little bit more money in and pay the mortgage off? Or do we let the current flat out being in negative equity and, and get a consent to let? and buy a new home, which is the route that we went. Um, so we, we basically let the current flat out. 
the the payment was relatively high back then and obviously rates have plummeted since so we you know it was it was wiping its nose a little bit shall we say and making a little bit of money but realistically we just moved into our house which then went on to make you know fortunes as the market recovered um and then we bought another sort of buy to let that was owned personally so we bought another one in an spv just for, for obviously tax reasons mostly um, but also legacy in, in the ability to pass it on to kids. So as I mentioned before this, I don't really enjoy property. My thing's more marketing, sales and, and business, but property is you know one for the future. We're looking at a holiday let next. I want a nice little weekend home where we can pick the kids up on a Friday for a couple of weekends a month and bugger off to you know Clacton, which is 40 minutes from us, or you know to Whitstable or Albra, which is in Suffolk or, you know, somewhere along those kind of lines and just have a bit of a, a home from home, but do a little bit of Airbnb in the same time. So you maximize your money. It's, it's popular at the moment. Uh, we had, what, three or four episodes ago, you guys spoke to some of the chaps down down on the coast about yeah. holiday lets. And I'm on right move at the moment. And my wife says, "What? why are you looking in Wales or why are you looking in Devon on right move? And it's kind of for that exact reason, really. It's, it's much easier yeah. just to to fly down there when the sun's out on a, on an early finish on a Friday. So it, I think it's very topical at the moment. Mike, you enjoyed that podcast. Actually, it was quite interesting. Yeah, it was a, it was a big one for me as someone who's done lettings for 17, 18 years, but bang in the middle of commuter Berkshire to actually learn something new from someone who's doing the same job, but slightly different. Um, and to see their enthusiasm for it and to see how they've grown clients money to see how they've, integrated with their own community so it's actually a popular area with the locals rather than sort of fought against which they're in devon and cornwall which is quite quite an quite an interesting area for local populations with with buying in their towns because it's sometimes seen as as forcing the locals out and they, they've sort of turned that on their heads so they're they're well thought of in their local pub which was important to them in in their business but yeah, I mean, yeah, you're spamming my inbox on WhatsApp with um, random places in Wales I've never heard of. And I think there's a lot of people who are thinking the same thing, particularly self-employed people. Um, it's a great way, like you said, Gary, Airbnb it for maybe 20 weeks of the year um, and it's paid for. And then it gives you the flexibility through certain, through certain periods of the year just to up and go on a Friday afternoon. So Gary, with, with regards to kind of going back to what you did originally and how you sort of started that business and utilising leads, it's always been in the financial industry. How have you kind of seen it evolve? Because I've got 20 years in property and I've seen like crazy changes in the industry. In the finance world, you must have seen all sorts of changes. But from a property investor or from a landlord's perspective, has it, has it changed a lot in terms of them at the end and you in the middle of, of what's going on? Yeah, big time. Um, I like to call it the good old days of pre-credit crunch, you know. Um, and I was, you know, if you, I was always an ethical broker, is what I would say. You know, I didn't want to strap somebody up with a debt that I didn't think they would be able to afford. But yeah, you know, prior to the credit crunch and and the reasons that that came about, you could sign a piece of paper and and effectively self-declare your own income, whether you were employed or self-employed. If you had a twenty-five percent deposit, then you didn't even need to do that. Um, it was just a case of, oh, 25%, brilliant. Give us your bank statements, give us your payslips, give you a mortgage. Um, and in some instances, you didn't even need to prove income at that point in time. But then, you know, credit crunch happened and then mortgage market review, MMR came around and affordability came in. And, you know, from a residential standpoint, it became much, much harder. And 
I, I, after the credit crunch, I was actually specializing prior to that in adverse credit. So my business disappeared on January 2009. So I diversified and did life insurance for, for nigh on seven years and built a seven-figure insurance brokerage. But I hated it because I continued to buy leads. And there's no loyalty in life insurance, realistically. Everybody needs it, but no bugger wants it. Yeah. Um, so I got back to mortgages in 2016. The exams that we still do today are still exactly the same exams I did in 2003. The process, having had seven years out, hadn't changed. The Just the number of pieces in the puzzle became greater because of the amount of criteria that was required. And particularly, you know, through COVID and the pandemic, we were looking at 400, 450 criteria changes, sometimes in a two-day period. And it's like, yes, we have tools and systems that keep up to date with that kind of stuff. But, you know, I think the need for a broker more is is now than ever, especially if you're self-employed, especially if you're you're in the buy-to-let or property investment space. And, you know, I coach and mentor loads of mortgage advisors in in another side of my business. And the the majority of them, especially the newer advisors, you know, no disrespect to them, but this is the hardest climate to try and learn the mortgage industry in mm-hmm. because of Sybil's bounce back loans, you know, using SPVs, you've got all the sexy property investment strategies that people are doing. And it's just one of those that for the end user, i.e. the landlords, I think as long as you're willing to accept, if you got a mortgage three years ago, maybe four years ago, you're just going to have to jump through a few more hoops. You're just going to have to dot the I's and cross the T's on a couple more bits of information. And it can feel like pulling teeth and you can get really frustrated with your broker, you know, or your advisor who's managing the process for you. But fundamentally, our job, and more so now because of regulation, is we work for the client, not for the lender. You know, it's, it all falls back to us as to whether we've given good advice and whether we've made the right recommendation and whether we're, you know, there's, there's preconceptions that some advisors choose the lender based on the amount that's been paid. That cannot happen anymore because of the amount of justification that we have to do. In financial services, the mortgage market is um, the, size of, the side of the market, pensions, investments, insurance, that gets the least number of complaints because we're the most compliant and we have to dot the I's and cross the T's more than any other part of it. Um, So I think, you know, it takes 20 hours roughly on average for a standard vanilla mortgage to go through from first conversation through to, you know, collecting the keys and and your landlord getting into the house. And as long as you've got some patience and, and are willing to work with the advisor who's looking after it for you, you know, we're very much a company that's, if not now, when, you know, we hate saying no, um, but find the right one, find the one who's got some experience and, and you'll be good as a landlord. I think now as a landlord, you want an experienced advisor with a good you know, three to five years under their belt. You don't want someone who's only been doing the job six to 12 months unless they're in a company like mine where we are supporting them every day with some kind of coaching call or you know something behind the scenes. Yeah, they're not just on their own and they're kind of rogue. We, we, we talk about it so much on this podcast about the importance of experienced advice in all different you know, silos of, of, of property, if you like, and purchasing from legals to accounts to everything. But I, I tell clients this all the time when they're looking to buy the difference of going to a high street and booking an appointment and 
being shown a list of products and having to decide them to yourself in comparison to talking to one of your brokers or talking to a really good experienced financial advisor. And actually as a landlord or as a property investor, telling them what the goal is, I think is so important. What is the goal? Are you trying to get this repaid by the time you're 50? Are you trying to make money monthly? Are you looking to refinance it and refurb it? What is the goal? And then you can work with your broker who, like you said, is working with you to work on a finance plan that's going to get you to that goal as, as quickly as you possibly can. And I just think it's so important for people to make sure they've got that right team with them that can, that can definitely adhere to that goal, really. Yeah, it's all about the story now, especially, especially if you're in the property investment space. You know, if you're buying, if you're buying just a, a normal buy-to-let, not really an issue. It's pretty standard. It's quite vanilla. But if you're doing a, a buy refurb refinance and then you want to, you know, you want to make sure that the deal stacks up, you need the finance to be lower because it will impact your profit margins. You know, if you're doing a, a bridge to let kind of product, you all just need to make sure that, as you say, it's for me, it's the vision in a business sense. We call it a strategy call as a first conversation. It's like, just give us the full story yeah. and don't try and hide anything or leave anything out because unless we know the full picture it'll always come up at some point in time and the last thing you want is is when you think you're going to get over you know get over the line and they do their final little check as a lender and and everything changes and and all of a sudden you get declined or you know they're they're not willing to lend anymore shall we say yeah i mean it's absolutely the same point in 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 our in our part of the industry as our clients we ask them to just tell us absolutely everything they know in in advance up front so we can deal with it there rather than having to deal with it late on in the process where you lose a lot of trust from people, from buyers, from solicitors, from, from mortgage brokers if something randomly pops up that you didn't have consent for something or there's something in the background or another charge or something like that is if you're told up front, you can deal with it and there's nothing that really surprises us anymore, I don't think. Very, very rarely does someone bring that up. But I just wanted to go back at something you mentioned um, when you're talking about selecting a broker. The, the majority of the people who really listen to this podcast, I would say, if I was to categorise them, first-time landlords, people looking for advice, looking for for somewhere to go, maybe building that in the process of building that team of people and a lot of them self-employed. We find a lot of our first-time landlords are trades at the moment who have done incredibly well for the last two years and now with with money in the business. What, what do you look for in a mortgage broker? Just like what do you look for in a uh, in online dating? What do you look for in a broker <laughs> that um, that right, says, right, "Yeah, right left. who I need to use"? Good sense of humour. <laughs> yeah, I think most definitely. To be honest, you know, it's I I love. Like I'm I'm quite into my fitness. I probably should have been a personal trainer in another life, um, and you know, I was never particularly academic at school, but I was always highly competitive. I play to win. You know, my wife hates anything. We went bowling at the weekend with the kids and she was like, oh, and she's like, I don't even, I don't even want to um, celebrate when you get a strike. And it's just like, <laughs> I'm the annoying person, you know? And I think we look for that in, in the advisors that we want to work with and say, if not now, when it shouldn't be a no, it should be a, you just can't do it yet. Um, and it should be the reason why we say a strategy call is because, you know, the, the whole ethos and principle of the way in which we work is like I pitch and my book's written on the basis of planning 12 to 24 months in advance because it just gives you 
enough opportunity, particularly if you're self-employed, anything's technically possible. If you know you need to go and add 100 grand to your net profit, well, unless you know that, then you can't reverse engineer getting to that point with your accountant or your business coach or whomever. Um, so from an advisor perspective, you know, you want someone who's able to think outside the box, who's able to come up with solutions and, and not be problem focused. You want someone who's competitive and, and, you know, I look for people with a little bit of a sports interest or something competitive in their nature. Um, there is definitely an argument for an element of attention to detail. And the difference now is, is mortgage advising for me used to be about people, whereas now it's become more about paperwork. And you need that element of attention to detail. And you'll probably agree that most of the best salespeople are not particularly good at, at paperwork. You know, it's, it's notorious that they need bloody good admin. So I've got a couple of advisors who aren't necessarily good at, at paperwork, but we make sure that we support them because they're bloody good with clients. You know, they've got the experience that they'll find a way and they'll go that extra mile. And it's like, I, I look for the type of advisor that is a bit like a dog with a bone. You know, the, the thing that I love and why I specialize in, or why we as a brokerage specialize in, in self-employed mortgages is just because every single client's different, but there's always a way. There's, there's hundreds of lenders out there. There's thousands of products out there. It's just, you've just got to know the criteria and be willing to, to kind of go gung-ho at, at finding the solution. Um, and there's nothing more gratifying than, you know, oh, I've been told no by three other brokers or three other advisors. And you go, ha, ha, ha. Well, I've actually dealt with one very similar. Let me take a couple of calls and, you know, you phone back and, yeah, it should be possible. And, and off you go and, and mortgage offers done in, you know, two, three weeks or four weeks, worst case scenario. And, and they're in the house three to six months later, depending on the chain, et cetera. Two types of people, aren't there? There's, in, in any walk of life, really, you've got people that see the problems and that, that's all they can see. And then people that can almost get obsessed and addicted to finding the solution. And I think your model and our model is very similar in how we operate with, with trying to make it right for the client first and foremost and not about departments and this, that and the other. And I think having that type of personality where you want to fix problems for clients that's the difference between good and average in, in both industries, really, which is, yeah, really, really interesting. I actually saw something on your website. It, it was a, state, a statement from a survey, I think, from legal in general that said something like 81% of buyers surveyed found working with a self-employed mortgage advisor uh, either extremely valuable or valuable. And I think that in itself is is exactly the ratio that I would expect, you know, 81% of people really find that really interesting because the other 19, it's probably a vanilla mortgage. Like you said, it's probably a straightforward one where anyone can just click a button, you know, on your, on your HSBC app or whatever it may be. So yeah, really powerful getting onto mortgages. It's been bonkers, hasn't it? Really the property market, the mortgage market. I mean, no one expected to come out of lockdown or when the housing minister opened things back up, you know, 18, 20 months ago and see what we've seen. Um, even before the stamp duty holiday, it was it was crazy. Um, what do you think is going to happen over the rest of this year for kind of the mortgage world? Are you, not, not talking about the property market and that link to it, but do you think banks and lenders are going to stay super competitive? If, if we see the base rate jump to 2%, 1.5% by the end of the year, do you think banks will just incrementally increase or do you think they're pretty locked in now at what they're doing? 
Yeah, well, the you know the the base rate and where they set their interest rates is ultimately where they make their profit margins, isn't it? So they've they've absolutely been raking it in over the last few years more than ever. Um, but I think as base rate goes up, then they will slowly but surely raise interest rates. And there's nothing more annoying. You know, I've got a Facebook group with two and a half, three thousand advisors in it, which was just started as a means to connect with other people in my industry back in 2018. And the number of times that it's like, oh, lovely of NatWest to tell me at three o'clock today that they're pulling rates at five. And then everyone's like, oh, I've got applications I need to submit and all that kind of stuff. So it's like from an advisor perspective, it's so bloody volatile. And, you know, they don't give you any notice when they want to pull products. And, you know, sometimes it's midnight if you're lucky. Other times it's like by five o'clock and they tell you at three. Um, But I think if base rate goes up, then rates will go up. But I do feel the criteria for certain types of mortgage will become to get will become a little bit easier. We've started to see some easings uh, in the way that things work. We've seen some more on the residential side. Buy-to-let really hasn't changed, yeah. you know, from a landlord perspective. The deposit amounts are still the same. You know, you're going to pay higher rates if you use 20%. Could be possible with a couple, of, you know, a few if you're doing 15% as a deposit. The calculations still remain the same in terms of the stress testing, but obviously if rates are higher, then the stress testing comes in um, much worse um, and you can't borrow as much. Um, But I think from a, you know, from a residential point of view, it's, it's getting better. Um, I think you're still better off in most circumstances. If you're a business owner and you're hitting the income thresholds, you're still better off buying in an SPV and, and obviously looking at legacy as well further down the line, which can come in with your estate planning. Um, but you just need to check the relevant people for advice, be it accountant, be it your advisor, be your estate planner on how you set yourself up. But I actually think taking rates out of the equation, I think we should start seeing that things would get a little bit easier as we start moving into, you know, in towards the end of the year and, and next year, realistically. Yeah, Unless it all goes and changes. <laughs> so you don't think the cost of living will have any impact on them relaxing those? On the uh, what on the resident on the landlord side? Yeah, well, on both really, in terms of like the stress testing or just just in terms of lending itself on the criteria, do, do you think that'll have any impact? Because obviously everything's going up. We're seeing people are being pushed. I mean, from a landlord side, they wouldn't lend if it wasn't going to make money, of course. That's why yep. they're, they're in place. But do yep. you not see that having any impact? I don't think so. I think the the thing that's always happened is that the lenders, since they did all the review and put all the changes in place from the tax perspective and, and you know, obviously made all the changes with regard to stamp duty and everything, although cost of living is going up, even for people that are renting, there's no talk in the industry at the moment that stress testing is going to change because I think they've got enough leeway in there for there still to be enough at the present time, you know, for, for things to change. How long that may happen at the moment, there's no talk of it changing. Yeah, maybe in another 12 months, but we've been in such unpredictable times. I'm literally, I can't, I don't like to talk more than 90 days ahead, realistically, because look at, you know, we come out of a pandemic and go into a war and it's like, what's coming next? It just doesn't, then we're coming out and now we're talking, I've got a friend who works for BP and she's saying literally there is a bit, you know, a petrol shortage and, petrol stations, BP petrol stations are being told to, to limit the amount of petrol that they're allowing out. And then your gas and electrics going up and it's like, 
what is going to come next. Um, but there will there be a property correction at some point in the future? I think they've spoken about that realistically for the last seven years, haven't they? Really? Yeah. We I should mean, wait I'm, and see. It's the same topic every January, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty active on social media. And one thing that I do find, I share good news and bad news, whatever it is, I'll share it. And obviously on social, you, you do you do see Pantsman12697. I'll always jump on and, and have a comment about the bubble that's about to pop or the world's about to implode and the property market crash. And you just think, how much money have you spent on rent for the last couple of decades waiting for that to happen? And how much will you spend for the next? And maybe there is a correction, but I think, when you're seeing years like last year where the property average price in the UK has gone up, depending on which portal or lender you talk to, 10, 12, 14% in one year, if there's a correction, yeah, maybe there will be, but the, the five years either side of that correction will completely balance it out. And I think that's that's what we'll see. And for, for it's quite interesting talking about business owners and petrol and things like that, because we do talk to a lot of business owners looking to invest in property and buy electric cars at the moment for obvious reasons. Yep. But it's just a great place for your business to put some of that cash that you've made when you own a business from tax reasons, from profit reasons, because you are investing in something that's going to create you wealth. It's going to create you an income. And in reality, you're doing it through someone else's money, which is where the lender comes in and, and that's fantastic. We had one podcast where we were talking with a wealth advisor about not just buying a buy-to-let, but with the monthly profit of that buy-to-let, putting some of that chunk into stocks and shares and actually diversify diversifying the original 25% that you've invested into a couple of different pots. And just thought that was brilliant because I hadn't really thought about it that way because as much as we talk about rates going up, they are crazy low. And if you are a buy-to-let investor at the moment and you're buying with a 25% deposit, you're making a lot of profit if you do that on an interest-only mortgage. And why not put that 800 quid or whatever the profit is into all sorts of different places? So yeah, yeah I, I, I'm with you. I, I just don't see... Um, I don't see a massive change on anything. We, we will see rates go up slightly and we will see the property market not do what it did last year and not do what it's done so far Q1 of this year, but still be very positive and a safe place to, to put it in. Is there yeah. anything that's happened over the sort of the COVID and the lockdown elements of things in the financial world? Obviously your business operates in, in the whole chain of events from, you know, the mortgage to insurance, to the estate planning, et cetera. Is there anything that shocked you that's changed from legals or from trends? Anything that surprised you over the, the last sort of two years? Well, the legals, the legals is all just one area that if you could nuke it and start it all over again, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the only way that it's ever going to get any better. You know, if things are, if, if, if blockchain has any use for anything, it would be the legal area without a shadow of a doubt. That's still, you know, we saw even January and February of 2022, such delays in completions and the number of mortgage offers that advisors are having to get extensions on at the moment because of the time that it's taking for completions. That's probably been the biggest shocker. Yeah. Uh, you know, go back to 2020 when they, you know, when they obviously put a stop to, uh, value as being able to go out and see properties that only happened for a short period of time, but that was a, a bit of a bomb at that point for us. But we never expected 
as an industry that, you know, bringing in the stamp duty changes as they did, the market went so buoyant for such a long period of time. But after that, you kind of expected that a bit like when they brought in the buy to let changes, everything went absolutely rife. And then there were so many people saying, oh yeah, it'll all change when it doesn't. And it ended and the market just carried on and continued and people still, investors still began to invest. Um, But yeah, I think where we're at currently, just the shit state that solicitors are in and the amount of time that they're taking to to get deals across the line yeah. um, is, is probably the only shocker at the moment. Yeah, it's a, it's a topic that we could talk for days and days about and I definitely had more hair and less grey hair um, <laughs> before before all of this and a lot of that's down to solicitors, unfortunately. But it, 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 is, a, it is an industry that needs a total disruption and you mentioned blockchain. I'm actually talking to um, a company that works on behalf of solicitors at the moment and they're very, very close to having that entity involved where that internal communication between all parties to lenders, to brokers, to solicitors, to buyer, seller and agents hopefully could interlink with some sort of blockchain setup. And I think if that explodes, hopefully communication, which is the big problem we have in that industry, could be yeah. eradicated. But yeah, we'll have to see when that kicks in. That 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 would make a massive game changer for sure. Um, Tristan, over to you with a couple of your Quick fire, sometimes quick fire, sometimes not questions, but I'm going to pass the mic to you, bud. Perfect. Thanks, Ian. Um, so, Gary, just answering with your personal opinion on this, so take your business hat off and just sort of speak freely. Try and keep it short and sweet if possible. As Ian said, it can go on a little bit. But <laughs> what happens next in the property market? Hmm. What happens next in the property market? Crikey, that's that's still always been a crystal ball question, isn't it? I think... Yeah. Yeah. Well, the time of the year that we're in now, houses coming onto the market and going off bloody quick. That's that's where it is at the moment. I mean, the data shows that I think there's about 41% less properties for sale this year than what there is as a last five-year average. And there's about 5% more properties coming to the market um, compared to a last fight. So there is more coming on, but they're selling so fast is 41% less. And I think demand is as high as 70 or 75% up on, on where it has been as a five-year average. So supply and demand dictates the price. And that's why there won't be a correction because of supply and demand. Yeah. There's, there's just not enough supply for the demand that there is. And they're, you know, they're flying off and they're yeah. coming on at ridiculous prices. Yeah. Is panic buyers, isn't it? As well, we talk to buyers, and the 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 theme from a buyer has gone from "Can I make an offer?" to "How much over asking price do I have to pay to get this house?" Because I've lost out on four, and it's it's just it's so different, isn't it? And that's a shortage of property. I mean, Tristan, we spoke to Andy from Mead New Homes about new homes, and and the stat blew my mind that there's more um, golf course space across the uk then there is urban property and both added together is less than five percent of the land of the uk that's that's how much space there is to try and support the property market and get more buyers on the ladder that's how much space we're not an overpopulated country by property we just need more buildings to to get people housed basically and that blew my mind you know golf courses there's more golf courses than there is space for urban property i've made your quick fire around uh, not so quick tristan so back to you <laughs> thanks again <laughs> um so if you were to invest in the perfect buy to let deal what does that look like to you oh 
Uh, one that cash flows for me um, because I'd do it on interest only. I would make sure that, well, to be fair, I'd buy. I'd have someone else refurb because I can't hang a curtain pole. Uh, I'd then refinance and take as much money as I could back out and I'd go and do it again. And would that be like a family home or uh, what sort of property would you be going for? Well, I'm based in Essex. So buy to let here is really hard to make stack up because of the property prices. You need hefty deposits to, to realistically make it work. So it depends on, well, I'm looking at holiday home, as I say, for the next kind of one. Um, so I'd probably be looking more towards from that basis, it would be a holiday let because I could get more money from my, you know, more bang for my buck around this particular area. Um, plus I can then leverage it as a little bit of a, a weekend, pick up the kids at 3.30 and bugger off for every other weekend and, and let it during the week. I'm going on my brother-in-law's stag do to Alba in Suffolk and we've just paid £675 for one night for a four-bedroom house because there's no poxy hotels available um, and there's just like me, my dad, my, my brother-in-law, my brother and uh, nephew, because none of us want to camp basically. So there's four, four of us who are too posh to camp. Um, and you're just like, well, 671 quid for a night. Yeah. It's half the mortgage done, you know, in, in one night. So exactly. So, so there's demand for it. Coming. There could be a few holiday homes coming your way then scattered around. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. There's, uh, there's plenty of nice little seaside places. There's something about that, whether I'm getting older or, or whatever it is, you know, being at home is great, but just being able to go somewhere and then have somewhere else to walk rather than it being around the streets or anything yeah. like that, you know, getting out to a seafront and, and whatnot is, is just something calming with, with the, the craziness of life and business and, and all that kind of stuff. Open air. With, with trains, uh, trends, not trains, um, with your brokers at the moment, what I've seen for the last five years in the property game is HMO, pre-COVID, five years pre-COVID, HMOs were a big theme and everyone was jumping about it. It's all over YouTube and we had loads of different demographics of investors coming to us. I want to buy a HMO. I need a four-bed townhouse, this, that and the other and whatever it was. Are you seeing with your brokers more mortgages being done on holiday lets in comparison to HMOs or is the scales kind of changing a little bit on, on those two areas? Um, looking at the stats and I've just, I have to, I have to do reporting every year for the FCA. So I've just had end of March as tax year. So I've just had to do my reports and literally looking at the last 12 months, I'd say it's very consistent. We're, we're doing, we do more property investment related stuff than we do residential now. Um, and we've, we've got clients who are buying six or seven properties a month in some cases as well. Um, but I think it's, it's an even spread um, in terms of what people want to ultimately achieve, whether it be a HMO or a serviced accommodation. We're doing a lot of buy and refurb with a view that they're going to obviously refinance or sell. Um, but I'd say there's definitely been, and I would say, it's leveling out from the point of view that yes, it was a lot of HMO as you mentioned, but serviced accommodations caught up, yeah, you know, or, yeah, or holiday lets caught up. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me because I, I yeah. think that's that's the same that we're feeling with buyers in, in inquiries and criteria. So, yeah, yeah. The, the 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 property prices down on the coast and the estate agents down there are absolutely having it off at the moment. So, have you got brokers down there? Um, we've got. Scotland, Wales, couple in York, Birmingham, Essex. Don't think we've got anyone out coast, massively coastal. 
But if you're a broker listening to this, we're always recruiting. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think we need an avocado estate agent and an active finance um, broker set up in partnership down on the coast. And I'm happy to go All down there the and help with some of the training from time to time as Always. well. Always. <laughs> nice little plug there. And then yeah. finally coming over, Gary, is if you were to give a landlord one piece of advice when looking to invest in property, what is that? Whether to invest in property. Yeah, well, if they're looking to invest, what's the best piece of advice you can give? Going on the basis that you said earlier, majority of your audience is kind of first-time landlords and stuff, I would say um, check your credit report consistently. The, the number one thing that catches people out is just this unsuspected, particularly as a landlord, you know, we've had it before with a guy who does buy six properties a month, is a multimillionaire, and he had a CCJ that he didn't know because of a property that he had let out, tenants had moved on, so on and so forth. So, the, you know, the, the Americans guard their credit report like it is gold dust. So, you can get Experian, you can get Equifax, you can get um or noddle but i can't remember what it's called now um all of these different ones but for me there's a company called check my file which we've used for a number of years now as a as an advisor and it encompasses all of the reports and ever since we've used that we've never had you know a, a car loan that suddenly crops up when the lender when we've got experience and the lender uses equifax for example um credit safe that's who has been replaced with with noddle um, so yeah, check my file. Um, it's a great tool. You can, you know, typical 30 days free and all that kind of jazz, but you need to be checking it every month, um, to make sure you're, you're, you're all good from that point of view. Cause although you can get them removed, it just, you don't want any scary points, particularly if you want to really build your portfolio in the future. Yeah. I've got to say, I totally agree with that. I had a massive problem with Barclay card reopening a credit card that I'd closed. And I only found out because I've got a credit karma account. Um, which is free, which I check all the time. And because they flagged it to me saying, you've got a debt on your on your Barclay card, which I'd closed two years earlier, um, I would never have known and I wouldn't have actually been accepted for a mortgage because it absolutely hammered my, my credit rate. Um, if you don't mind, gents, I want to have the last word, if that's all right on this one. I want to go all the way back to the start where you said you were an accidental landlord as a result of going into negative equity and finding a way out of it rather than panic selling. I guess it's an open question for everyone here. Does it even matter how much your house is worth when it's a buyer to let? We've talked about more property, probably in property market going up and down. Does it even matter? I don't think so. Um, to put it in context, I bought that flat in 2006. Uh, we moved out in 2011. We put the money that my wife and I had saved into a deposit for our new four bedroom house, moving from a two bedroom, you know, really nice flat in, in this area. Um, and four years later, after moving into our house in, into this house, funnily enough, in 2015, we'd made a hundred grand when I sold the flat, um, which was probably 2017 actually now, I'd made 50 grand in nine years uh, or in 12 years. So I still made money and accumulate up a hundred pound a month, you know, 1200 quid a year during that course of profit during that period of time. I'd still made money during that period of time, but I just bought at the wrong time. Now, if you were buying obviously for a cash flowing strategy or, or to really make money, yes, 
you want to buy at the right time as we did with our house. And we bought, we bought a new build. It was like three or four years old when we bought that in 2011. It was just the market correction that, that made it go up so well. We, we rode a wave effectively. Um, well, on the flat, I rode a wave down. On the house, I rode a wave up. Yeah. Um, you did it the uh, right way around, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, we've, we've made more money on this house again since because the market's continued to, you know, the waves continued to get bigger. Does that mean the wave is going to crash again in the future? Realistically, you know, I bought that flat to live in. If you're buying a property as we did, you know, we put that money back into another buy to let that, that worked a little bit better and we tied up a little bit and we've just let it out in the SPV. But if you're buying it, that was just a right. This one, we're going to buy and keep irrespective of what happens. It's always going to be profitable. Um, it's a different kettle of fish when you buy it to live in it. And, you know, it then goes right the way down because the, the rental income was way too, you know, I wasn't able to get the rent that I would want based on the mortgage amount that I had. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you're buying it now and there's a massive crash, if you're making 250 quid a month, whatever happens to the purchase price, you're still going to be making 250 quid a month. Yeah, absolutely. I, I often have a debate with investors that are always pro buying up north because of obviously the prices and maybe there's some, you know, the don't get the appreciation of- though. Exactly that. And that was exactly my point. If you're talking a four and a half or 5% yield versus a six and a half, but you're seeing equity growth because you, you invest where you hug the M25 rather than going up north, you'll see 50, 100 grand chunk up on your equity in 10 years rather than 10, 15 grand. I mean, my sister bought in Sheffield and moved up to Sheffield with her family probably 15 years ago and probably made 15 grand on, on the property in that 15 years. And, you know, it's yeah, it might have been cheaper and you might have got a better yield on it, but it's not all down to that. So to answer your point, Mike, from my perspective, not really, no, because people have to remember you're not you're not spending 400 grand of your own cash, are you? You're borrowing most of it. So as long as it cash flows and it makes money, you're winning, I would say. Yeah. And there's a big thing that we're seeing at the moment with landlords who have generally kept their house quite low in terms of borrowing percentage, refinancing up to about 65% because interest rates are so low, yeah, they want cash because they can get deals at the moment. So there are deals out there. There are opportunities. Um, you know, if you, if you think the baby boomer market is, is at that point where there's lots of houses. I live in a, in a little village in Essex. There is loads of, people that have lived in houses for decades coming onto the market. They haven't been decorated in 20, 30 years. These things look ridiculous, Um, but there are lots and lots of opportunities coming on. If you're, you know, if you make the right relationships and if you're looking for the right deals, you know, if you're, if you're doing the work as you should do as a landlord, much like we do in the mortgage industry, or I do for my advisors, you know, you've got to be marketing. You've got to be out there meeting people. You've got to be out having conversations, posting on social media, talking about your viewings that you're doing, what properties you want to get, what you're looking for. And, and, you know, ultimately, as you going back to the original question, as long as it cash flows, does it really matter? Yeah, I think I think the, the way people buy property is definitely changing. We're seeing that with the way that we work. And if you're using a more bespoke and exclusive broker like like your network, or you're using the same with an agent, most of our properties they don't need to go on the portals anymore. We'll we'll promote them on our social channels. We'll promote them through our CRM, 
And then if we need to, we'll outsource it to the portals. And nine times out of 10, the good properties have gone way before that. So having yeah. a good communication channel with a good broker and a good agent makes a massive difference. Um, Gary, absolutely loved the conversation. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for jumping on the podcast. It's been great hearing what's going on in the finance world from a, a different kind of perspective in, in all sorts of financial parts of it. And if um, anyone wants to check out your podcast, you've got a really active podcast a youtube channel yourself as well what, what would be uh, the best place that they can search for those yeah so we've just reached as of tomorrow funnily enough at the time recording this 21st of april i've just got to 200 episodes uh, about 175,000 downloads we've just got to i'm just rebranding from it's still very targeted at advisors but a lot of what i talk about is business related mm. um so we're just rebranding to the pro podcast um got loads and because i've got clients now who are awesome property investors and, you know, it gives me the opportunity to invite you back onto mine as well. Um, I'm bringing clients on uh, for them to have to obviously have conversations about their journey, their property investment, their developments, you know, their businesses that they're ultimately building. Um, so, yeah, just search me, search the pro podcast. Or if you want to grab a free copy of my Amazon bestseller, The Self-Employed Mortgage Guide, just go to the selfemployedmortgageguide.co.uk and there's an ebook available to download and a physical copy that we'll post out to you if you pay the postage for free. Um, and yes, it's aimed mostly at residential, but 90% of the book is exactly the same for landlords as well. Yeah. Awesome. Love that. So really appreciate it. Thanks so much. And we'll catch up soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it, gents. So chaps, there we have it. Really good. I don't think it was a long podcast because it sort of flowed very quickly. But when I look at the clock, we actually spoke a lot about a lot of different things so i'm hoping our listeners took a lot of really good information away and just enjoyed the conversation really because it was it was raw honest um you know we nearly touched on on the legal issues with solicitors like we we do every now and then on this podcast but we stick away from it and we really sort of focused on the money markets and tristan from your point of view was there anything in particular that stood out from the conversation with gary that you will um i guess use for yourself with conversations with with your clients yeah definitely there's one specific thing that he's mentioned about why he fell into becoming a landlord he brought at the wrong time um, and the market actually dipped but when we recapped at the end and mike asked the question of is there really a wrong time to buy a property even if um, the market's going down well the truth is no as long as you're making a profit from that property, someone else is going to be paying the mortgage. And if it's from a business, like typically our, our listeners are running a business and they've got money, especially the trades, they're using the success of that, which is tax efficient to fund uh, the property as well. And we all know with property, it's going to grow in value. So the fact that he wouldn't change things and he would definitely, he's looking to invest in another property. So it's definitely the right vehicle for him. Yeah, I think in that particular case study, it's interesting because he bought at the wrong time. He then needed to move, which people need to move. He bought a new home, you know, which a lot of people have this persona around new homes that you can never get a good deal as a new home. But in the end, when sold both properties, he made 50 grand on the flat, even though it went down to go up. Um, it covered its mortgage. The tenant paid for the, for the finances. And I'm sure he made a money on it monthly as well. And then obviously made a hundred grand on the house, on the new home. So it worked out perfectly well for him. Had he not done that, he would not have made the 50 
and the hundred. So, you know, from that point of view, he effectively made an extra 50% in, in keeping hold of the property. So perfect example of a case study of, of using the, the lender's debt to make sure you make more money. What about yourself, Mike? Yeah, I think I was interested in his underlying confidence in the mortgage market and where it's going to go for the rest of 2022. Um, because there are a lot of doom and gloom merchants around who will talk about the cost of living crisis, we'll talk about Ukraine, we'll talk about fuel, we'll talk about anything they can to kind of connect it to a dip in the housing market when you've got a guy who's running one of the biggest or one of the fastest growing mortgage networks in the UK telling you that everybody out there in, in his world is confident about it. Yeah, totally. No, I mean, I, I feel... There's a lot of synergy between his business and avocado property and how we work. And both both businesses have the client in mind and how we can make sure that communication is at the height of where it needs to be to deliver a quality of not just service, but expertise to that particular client. And I think it's it's great to see a business like that for mortgage advisors because for property investors and landlords, having the ability to have someone's mobile and just ping them a WhatsApp could save someone tens of thousands of pounds on the decision they're about to make in that moment just by having the right advice. And I think we talk about that so much that it really makes a big difference having that kind of bespoke service for people. So yeah, experience, communication, service is vital. Uh, Gary obviously knows his stuff. He knows his data. It was quite interesting when he was mentioning that for um, the FSA, he has to supply a load of um, data and information. I'm definitely going to kind of try and pull him on the side to get some of that info, not for his business, but just from a trend perspective for the industry, because as you know, I like my data. So really interesting chat. And I think his tip at the end about uh, using a company like Check My File, just to make sure that your credit rating is where it should be. Um, it kind of scared me a little bit, actually, because God knows the last time I checked mine and I think I'll probably get it done this afternoon. So that's another podcast in the can. Loved it. Next week, we're back um, potentially with another exciting guest or it might just be the three of us um, sharing some really good information for people. So make sure you check it in on Friday. We've got a topic which I think people are going to love. So thanks for everyone that's listened. And if you've got any questions, you know where we are. Drop us a DM or a comment and we're happy to help. I'm flicking through YouTube and through Spotify. I don't think there's a podcast or a video channel on YouTube that landlords can land on where they're not being sold something. I mean, it'd be the first time any estate agents ever asked that question, but why not ask that question to a wider audience? They just have the knowledge there, but they don't seem to share it. You can do different episodes based around someone that wants an exit plan or someone that's just starting their portfolio. The rules change every year. Yeah. But why not just open the floor out and just say, well, is property even the best investment out there? And tax advice is a big thing, especially with everything that's changed, capital yeah. gains tax and obviously your stamp duty costs that you need to pay and whatnot. People don't realise what they need to prepare for. We build a podcast and we build a YouTube channel, somewhere that landlords can go and they feel they're not being sold to, but they're just getting quality advice.